0: welcome to the petro nerds podcast with your hosts trisha curtis ceo of petro nerds
1: and ethan bellamy this show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a rocky mountain showdown brought to you by digital wildcatters
0: hello and welcome to the 18th petro nerds podcast today is thursday june 3rd 2021 and I am back with my co-host, Ethan Bellamy, in my kitchen.
1: Nice to see you again, Trisha Jean Curtis.
0: Oh, dropping the middle name. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yes, Tricia J. Coffee on Twitter. Nice to see you as well. So we have a jam-packed agenda today loaded for you. I was in D.C. last week. So many, many things happened in the oil and energy space, um, and Ethan and I are going to dive into it. We are going to talk about uh, the this forum I was just at with my former employer, the Energy Policy Research Foundation, who just did an event on natural gas literally this morning. So I'm running off a lot of coffee and not a lot of sleep. And, um, and we're going to talk about some of the things that the Biden administration has done with their executive orders and um, the things that that Correlates pretty well to what's going on with the Exxon board and the activism as well. We're also going to touch on Dakota Access Pipeline and obviously OPEC and oil prices and everything happening. So, jam packed agenda. We're going to jump right in it.
1: Ethan. Yes. And we should benchmark the discussion by saying that uh, we just had a big oil draw, but we had a big products build. And July WTI is trading at 60, 68 and 50. 30 cents.
0: I saw it hit 69. Is it did. Yeah. You know,
1: it came back yeah. because the product deal was too big. Yes. But that is a compelling price for everybody on this podcast who's probably a net long listener is my
0: guess. It's a really compelling price. And I think it's also, you know, I was explaining to clients this week and working on some presentations. And I, I basically said, look, we have a very bi- dual bifurcated world that I think has been developed really coherent, really... Only probably in the last few weeks have I think folks got really excited about the um, this big bull run up in oil prices. And this is obviously in tandem with, with that other aspects of inflation, but you've got everybody going green and going crazy on ESG and everything. At the same time, you have oil prices running up and you are starting to hear folks pivot back into oil and gas. Dan Pickering mentioned this on, on the Clubhouse event with Chuck Gates where he was he actually called out Chuck for saying, hey, this is different. And he was saying, look. We're actually starting to see just in the last couple of months, people pivoting back into oil and gas. We are seeing guys on Bloomberg, JP Morgan guys, everybody basically advising their clients to get back into oil as a hedge against inflation. And that's just a little piece of it, but it's a reality. I mean, you can't have oil prices this high without people wanting to pivot back into it, especially in light of having everything else that's also inflating.
1: Yeah. So two aspects of the inflationary story, the first is the macro monetary policy with so much money being printed lately so that is obviously inflation inflationary on a on a large scale every specific market has its different supply and demand fundament, fundamentals the oil dynamics are very constructive on a fundamental basis right now as we see the recovery underway um, but there is that sort of damocles of opec and what their policy is going to be hanging over the market so we talked a lot in the past about what they're trying to do to prevent demand destruction but also to take advantage of potentially selling security prices at, selling securities at, at saudi Aramco. so the saudis want to sell some securities and you think that that may have some influence on how they don't necessarily flood the market in near term to, to suppress prices
0: well yeah i mean i think so opec had their meeting, so we had the meeting and and really this is what sort of sold the market into like this uh you know Everybody going crazy, so everybody getting really, really excited about oil prices, and and I wouldn't say people like flooding back in, but last week, obviously, when I was in D.C., you had the whole debacle with Exxon and Chevron and Shell, which we'll get into, and then um, people were waiting to see what's happening with OPEC, and now it's like, oil prices are great, and it's going to the moon. Um, so, the Saudis, though, basically said, I mean, they... <laughs> They uh, commented on the IEA report, which is pretty funny because they were basically saying it was it was in law La Land. So the IEA report on net zero 2050. So they called that out, saying it was BS essentially. And, and the Russian
1: oil minister said, if you did that, we will go to two hundred dollars a barrel. Yeah, so I mean, sad.
0: they so. basically just said you're you're helping us essentially. So I mean, they to be fair, I mean, they shouldn't really be giving it the cre- they shouldn't really be giving it the credibility that other folks are giving it because it was a thought exercise. Even though Fatih parole has now said. He's now said that it's one of his best and most important works that he's done. And so I will we can come back to that. But I think there's a lot of problems with that in general. Like what's the agenda of that report really of that report today at this event? They talked about it as well of like, hey, this has got everybody in a tizzy. So in tandem with oil prices going crazy, you have that report which says oil prices would be 37 WTI in 2021, which it's 2021. So, and it's not 37 WTI, it's nearly 70. So, I mean, we're just having two different worlds, but back to OPEC and the Saudis, I think, you know, the Saudis have a, basically said, we're not gonna do anything more. So they didn't change anything. They just said, we're gonna add these barrels back to the market, these 2 million barrels a day that we said we were gonna bring back, which was their million barrels a day that they had done the the cut in January and February. And then they've kept that. So we mentioned in I think in our last podcast that Saudi production as of April was like 8.1 million barrels a day and change and that overall uh, OPEC production in April as of the last OPEC report is about 25 million barrels per day and they were benefited a little bit by some slipping in Venezuela. Um, so they're saying we're going to over May, June, and July, you will see basically 2 million barrels a day brought back on. And so obviously, over the course of May, we've seen it, we'll have to see what happens in June and July. But I want to caution folks, we haven't seen the barrels actually, you know, we haven't seen the July barrels so that those additions that have to be on there, they, they have to actually come onto the market. And I do think the. I think the fundamentals are positive and that they are getting absorbed. I mean, everything going on with India and India was not in full lockdown. I mean, their mobility indices have come down significantly. We saw that in IEA's monthly report. But I mean, we and we EIA revised India demand by 400,000 barrels per day. But it wasn't it didn't create a whole market because we have enough momentum, especially in the U.S. I mean, U.S. demand is just ratcheting up, crushing it. We're basically at pre-COVID. We're like 2019. We're 20 million barrels a day demand, which is fascinating because our changes in behavior, we've offset in a lot of ways. Like We're driving more in different ways. We're not driving to work, but you're driving, you're driving in the middle of the day to do different stuff with your kids, I aren't mean, you? You're coming over here, like all kinds of different behavior changes that a lot of people are doing and we're flying a lot domestically. And so we're still off on jet fuel demand, but we've recovered pretty well given that we haven't actually opened to the international market, which means we probably will see, and this gets the Goldman Sachs, Jeff Curry saying, you know, we're gonna see 80 this summer. That when it, things do really open and Europe is open by you know summer and fall, that then we'll have a supply shortage. But that's all based upon OPEC bringing two, OPEC plus bringing these two million barrels a day back, but then not doing anything. And they didn't say we're hundred percent not going to do anything. They left it open on purpose, intentionally. They left it open because they're doing a monthly guide. They meet every month and they do this. And so you know next month if it if it looks bad, you know they could bring less crude back to the market, you know, or something they could even make it tighter, but there's an incentive for the Saudis to keep prices inflated. So technically speaking, according to Goldman Sachs, and you can tell me if you agree with these numbers, but technically speaking, according to Goldman Sachs, we have, you know, we'll be at 100 million barrels a day of demand before the end of the year, and that we will be shy by a couple million barrels a day, and so that we'll be short. The market will be short, and that's where prices prices will spike before, and will continue to spike. So that means that 100 million barrels a day is just pre-COVID levels. That just means we're getting back to normal, um, and maybe if we go above that, that's that's great. That's we're increasing demand, but that's pre-COVID levels. So it means that. Somebody's holding barrels back. Obviously, the 2 million barrels a day from the U.S. that we're at 11, I assume will be a little higher. The OPEC and IA both think that we're going to decline this year. I think they're very wrong about that. I don't think U.S. production is going to decline 100, 200,000 barrels a day this year. But that means that OPEC's holding these barrels back. And that's artificial holding back. And so there's an incentive to do that. That's because they want to, whether they want to sell assets in gas pipelines or oil pipelines or bring more share, you know, sell more stakes inside of shares. Oh, by the way, they also need $75.00. Brent to clear the Saudi Aramco
1: dividend. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know what I want to pick up on there, but the, the main thing I want to pivot to is what could monkey wrench this constructive story that seems to be percolating through the market. And I don't think that this is necessarily the case, but the obvious wild card on supply is Iran. So Iran activity has been pretty remarkable. So first, their largest ship caught on fire and sank in the in the in, Oman, in the uh, Gulf of Oman. Their, the state-owned refinery 20k outside of uh, Tehran caught on fire, and then that was the same day, Wednesday of this week. And then we have the the JCPOA meeting, which is you know most of the superpowers and nuclear armed countries that are talking about the Iranian uh, uranium enrichment program. You know, that's on, on a week-long break, and then we have the Iranian election coming up. So I sarcastic, well, most of the things I write on Twitter are sarcastic, but to, to be fair, but I posted, what is the theoretical production limit of Iran, and how much would it cost them in terms of capex to get there, and how fast could they do it? And please denominate your answers and what you want. <laughs> i saw that yeah okay so i didn't follow all those responses, so, yeah but... so the question really is you know how fast and how quickly and how feasible is it for the iranians to add two three million barrels a day production
0: i think it's um so one i think it's way more feasible to add a million barrels a day which is really mm-hmm. what we're talking about than most people realize so there's there's a few things i've noticed in the market and that's like this is again you you 10 o'clock to 1 a.m., the market has just that's all we're talking about is oil prices for the past week and everything in, in Iran. And so you have all kinds of speculators getting on Bloomberg at night and saying, okay, you know, yes, you can easily add a million barrels of day back. No, we can't easily add a million barrels of day back. You know, Jeff Curry from Goldman saying it's not, it'll take longer because of these nuclear agreements. It, already, part of this is that we have some opaqueness in the market. I mean, we, we don't have a lot of clarity exactly. We revised our numbers for supply and demand two years back. So right now, we think we know what fundamentals are. We think we know supply. We think we know demand. We don't know actually exactly. We know U.S. supply and demand really well because we have a really transparent and clear market. We don't actually have that globally. It's a little bit more murky. So the Iran thing, I think, does cloud it because... I've heard a lot of folks saying, you know, Iran's only producing they're they're producing less than what their OPEC numbers actually show that they're producing, which is about 2 million barrels per day. We know they're producing at least and they say they're not exporting anything. We know they're exporting almost a million barrels a day to China right now. Like we know that. That that's absolutely given that's been confirmed by a number of different sources and yet you have analysts and folks doing doing their oil price numbers assuming that that Iran isn't exporting. They're already exporting. So It's kind of barrels that are, I mean, because they're going directly to China, I don't know if they're getting, you know, assessed in the market appropriately. So it's a positive thing overall that the market's handling those and China's getting those. China could just be stockpiling them though. So it's a little bit more murky there. But we know they're exporting. They actually just opened up their, so that pipeline we talked about, that I believe is the JAS terminal and pipeline that goes around the straight armies, that's now exporting. So these people who get on TV and tell you, Oh, when when the JCPOA, when we rejoin this agreement, and Iran starts exporting, they're already exporting, folks. They literally are exporting from this pipeline. that moved around, you know, the Strait of Hormuz, and they've done all this simultaneously. Why they've increased their uranium enrichment in, intentionally? They've increased it to nearing its at sixty percent. They, um, the IEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, just did their review, and basically, obviously. Shocker! Um, they had some questions about what they were doing, and they didn't really. It didn't really work out. That's why we have not hit a an agreement or deal. And Iran is saying, where every week you hear them saying, "Oh, we're getting really close." Rouhani keeps saying, "We're getting really close." Well, they have an election. This basically, I think it's June 16th. Um, so they have an election coming up. All the um, moderates, shocking again, are are no are have been removed from the pool. So it's only hardliners. So we have an election with super hardliners. They've increased their uranium enrichment. They failed the um, International Atomic Energy Agency thing, um, and they're already exporting crude. So what, what exactly are lifting sections going to do anyway, other than handing them, you know, more, more keys to the kingdom? I just don't understand this. And I don't think this is, you know, OPEC said that they, they said, quote, they didn't even talk about Iran, which is a load of crap. We know they talked about Iran, but they said, quote, they didn't talk about it, meaning it's a bigger issue than people want to make it out to be.
1: Well, um, I think anybody on this call, on this, uh, on this podcast, hopes that you're right because I think there are a lot of people who would like to see eighty dollars barrel oil. Um, I think we should move on to. Um, Do
0: you think we clarified the risks though on the downside of? I I think we are I'm not saying I don't think Ethan and I are nearly like crazy bullish. I mean we we can see higher oil prices. The risks I think you were just saying though on the downside are isn't just that you bring up these Iran barrels back. I think it's the market not completely interpreting it correctly. And I think this inflation piece, the one thing people are getting wrong is that when is the last time, you know, you and I remember, and I mean, I'm not old enough to remember real inflation. I am old enough to remember 2008 and I'm old enough to remember $150 oil. We didn't have real inflation then. We have inflation now and we have running up in oil prices. There is a difference. And the reason the difference is is because our dollar is being, you know, in previous bouts of high oil prices it wasn't as you know the dollar didn't play maybe as big of a role now the dollar is getting hammered because everyone sees our inflation particularly this is in look in the global surprise inflation index on bloomberg we have skyrocketed over every other country of the entire world which means our fiscal policies our monetary policies everything biden is doing all the stimulus it's people are viewing the dollar poorly we're getting hammered by that and i think that in tandem with high oil prices if we have to, if the Feds has to start start talking about tapering or, you know, if they have to tap on the brakes or just ease tapering, that could cool, that could help the dollar supportive of the dollar a and it could cool off prices a little bit. And that is not like prices aren't going to crash. It's just this, you know, perfect momentum up to $150 oil. We just may not see that perfect trajectory because it's not as simple as supply and demand and the Saudis are keeping it artificially inflated.
1: Yeah. We, we should say that a lot of the non-energy inflation, is linked to a pause in a, a stoppage in the supply chain for goods and services during COVID. And we've seen the rebound there. So just an anecdote that I found interesting, I, I went to try, you know, my, my sons are nine and 11 and they're in that hyper growth phase where everything they have is out of out of phase in six months or so. I tried to buy my youngest son a bike and the supply chain backlog, they're saying 2024 until it balances out. Now, let's just carve off two, two years of that because the sales guys are trying to sell yeah. a lot of bikes and, you know, make it seem like there is a, the, the supply crunch is worse than it is. The fact that you can't buy a bike that you want to buy in this economy with, you know, the, the supply chain logistics, manufacturing, R&D that we have is pretty surprising.
0: Yeah, well, and I, we've we talked I, we mentioned before. That's a I think these anecdotal stories. All you have to do is really like look at your life and how you're spending your money and what you are doing, and think about everyone else doing that because this is a one that's a sign of the pent up demand. Is that you weren't buying your kids a bike during COVID? You weren't going out and doing stuff. Now people are like, everything they're crazy about going out and doing it. Restaurants are booked. Everything's crazy, and this. This pandemic-induced supply crunch, it's part of it. So this, that's the argument that the Fed is making to a degree, is that why, why they see the inflation as transitory. You know, other folks, Lawrence Summers, like other ones that are getting, you know, people are getting pretty fearful of, I mean, literally using the words fearful, A big names are fearful of this inflation because it's not just, you know, it's pandemic-induced and there's aspects to it, but then it's actual, then you have the inflation piece to it. And eventually, you know, oil prices come down. Um, Everything else, when those bike prices go up, do they lower the prices for the consumer? No. They keep those prices up and you keep paying and they pocket it. So that's real inflation that never goes away. Oil price is one of those things that goes up and goes down and we we pay differences. But very few other things, that they actually lower the prices back. So I'm pretty concerned with lumber prices um you know escalating that they're not necessarily gonna you know that the housing guys aren't gonna be like, oh yeah, lumber prices went down. You know, maybe if you're doing if you are doing it yourself and building it, you're gonna see that, but not if you're buying a house. So there's all these aspects to it, but I think corporations are also hoarding, and I think we have mentioned this before, but because corporations are seeing this, we are seeing them hoarding. The pandemic is um I have got turned on to a new podcast as well on, on China and Africa, and it's really good because they're talking about the the south the global south and the fact that the pandemic is raging and you know we don't feel it right now we're we're fully vaccinated and we're going out we're doing everything um and in the global south i mean in vietnam it's a mess right now you know they're in full lockdown um india is not you know it's it's getting better they went from 350,000 cases a day to 270,000 cases a day. it's declining but now they have this um really awful um fungal infection that is common in India, but it's not common for everyone. But now because of the steroids that they've given all these patients, it's rampant. And so people are losing their literally losing their sight and losing their eyes to save them. And it's a huge problem. So all kinds of things in India. And India was a big problem of the supply chain. Perfect example of the supply chain crunch for the vaccines itself, because all these countries were supposed to get the vaccine supplied by India. And because India is going through their this wave, they can't supply the, the actual vaccine, so it's a huge problem. And um, and then you, you just haven't had the same vaccine uptake. One, they haven't had the availability of these vaccines, and um, they also haven't had the uptake because in places, you know, in China and even in Hong Kong, they didn't have the. They did so well with the first waves, and it went away that people are just saying, "Well, why why do I have to take the vaccine?" So these things are all. Really, cornerstone to the supply chain because it's where you know Singapore is a major trading hub. All these things—if something happens, if there's a hiccup—and especially India, we see the ripple effects throughout the world. Taiwan's going through a major drought, and you need a lot of water to make semiconductors, and that's the major semiconductor hub. So that is one of the big problems. So it's many, many things. So. I I, Part of me doesn't completely disagree with everything the Fed has said of why they think that some of this is transitory. I just disagree with, you know, at the end of the day, when you have this month-over-month inflation that's nearing, you know, the I put it on Twitter and put it on LinkedIn, the Bureau of Economic Analysis put those numbers out, taking out energy out of it, and we were at 0.7% month-over-month, you know, and it's the month-over-month figures that you, what happens when we get to the end of the year, and we're still doing that. So I think that's what we we just have to be cautious of, and that in tandem with, Inflation is good if it's if you're having economic growth. Inflation, though, is going to reduce people's purchasing power, which could actually impact oil demand. Yes, it could. So I think we've rounded up. We talk about a lot. We will continue to talk about inflation and oil prices because this is a story that just keeps on. This is never ending for a while. So um, shall we? Um, Pivot back to natural gas and um, this upbringing thing and the natural gas, this Wall Street Journal article.
1: Sure. And, and I should mention, and I don't want to go too much into this, but we have seen a little bit of a consolidation wave. Absolutely. So, Please do. You know, there's a bidding war for Enter Pipeline um, with uh, Pembina and Brookfield going after what is a, effectively an 8000000000 billion-ish asset. Uh, we saw Kinder Morgan buy Stagecoach from Crestwood. That's a, a storage asset up in the Northeast. Um, we saw southwestern take out Indigo Natural Resources, the Haynesville for 2.7 billion. That was a pretty big deal, and then a private deal: Colgate Energy Partners buying uh, Lux Energy. I love that name, Lux Energy, um, and that was an undisclosed price, and that was in the Permian. So we have seen some midstream and upstream consolidation, which I see as constructive. Obviously, there are differences between all these these markets, but if you're seeing deals come together that is in my view part uh, a part and parcel of 60 to 70 dollar oil allowing the bid-ask spread to close and allowing people to transact without the expectation there'll be major price changes and they'll either they'll look really stupid for selling at the bottom i think that stage is over they there could be some upside to oil if we get 80 but if we go from 70 to 80 that you don't necessarily look dumb selling at that price level
0: uh you know, I do agree with you, Ethan. I wow. actually agree with you. I um, lots of caveats to that because it makes me think about the um, the stuff that happened with the Exxon board. Because I do think now that, you know, there sh- should be an incentive for folks to actually, even if if you're not, even if you're not hearing companies talking about going private in their boardrooms, I guarantee you, somebody has brought it up. If you are not think, if you're public and you're these. De- a small enough company, if you're not thinking about going private, you're out of your mind. You should at least be having the conversation to figure out how to do it. Now, that being said, apparently the uh, administration is going back after sage grouse. So that might not help you if you're private anyway, because the sage grouse might be enlisted as an endangered species. But that's for another time.
1: Yeah, but uh, but I should also point out that everywhere you look, regu- regulation is becoming more challenging. The core processes are becoming more challenging. Red tape is is becoming more onerous doing anything with the federal government is gonna take you longer, it's gonna cost you more. So what that does is it makes it better to be bigger and instigates consolidation because you need your own internal resources and balance sheet to navigate some of these issues. And we saw that that, uh, interesting merger in Colorado of uh, Bonanza Creek turning into Civitas. Mm -hmm. So with base, yeah, with extraction, so basin consolidation in order to deal with these regulatory agencies, I think makes a lot of sense because you need a bunch of expertise and spreading that out over a bigger asset base makes a lot of sense.
0: I think on paper, it's, from, from that side, I think it sounds good and in theory, that's how it should work. Um, but if, if this stuff with the activist pressure and actually the, the executive order that the, that the administration has just passed um, on the financial side with climate change. That's some good pressure. it. So I think this consolidation piece, you know, the trajectory of consolidation, especially with oil prices are a huge part of this. I mean, oil prices at these levels, everybody wants all of a sudden people want to buy in. And I know because my phone's ringing off hook and I know from clients and, and people that ever you're talking to, if you're talking to anyone in the space, it, it wasn't hot to go buy. you know, production. Now everybody wants it. You can't, you know, you have 80 different buyers. So oil prices are high and it. I think someone last night I heard an entity said, um, it wasn't referring to oil, but was just referring to the economy and said, it's boom and bust. And this is, and we always forget the bust. And I used to always say this in presentations because I grew up around the oil and gas business is that it's a boom and bust business. Um, The booms are great and the busts are really, really hard. And we're booming right now. And folks have already, I didn't say they've forgotten, but we were at minus 37 last April. So they're forgetting quickly. So this booming and this consolidation, I think is positive in that it's a lot of it's net it should have happened before. I don't know if the Simrex cabot thing, you know, makes complete sense to me. I, I, I need to dive into, it. I mean, I think from their standpoint, it's probably, I actually haven't listened to the call, but I think it's, you know, we're adding this additional diversity. I think the gas side in terms of the Marcellus pivoting in Haynesville that makes total sense. You know, that's giving exposure to Haynesville and Haynesville becoming a little more public. Hainesville's on private land or most Haynesville's relatively private. Um, so that make that stuff makes sense to me. But, you know, I've listened to this, this EPRink, um event opened up with the with actually someone with the administration with the Office of Fossil, it's the Office of Fossil Energy um oh yeah office uh, chief of staff of fossil energy um it's dr um talati and she opened up with just you know a a wide it wasn't she didn't say anything specific or super super concrete but she was basically just saying yes we're doing fossil energy and we're gonna have to get greener and cleaner and all this stuff it didn't sound to me like we're embracing oil and gas by any stretch of the imagination so i just think that the pressures from well basically it's going to be no flaring at all so there's zero flaring which you know, we were moving that direction anyway, and all about methane and capturing. But I think the problem is it's always the goals out here. So come achieve it. So the industry is going to do that anyway. But then I want to know what's next. It's like, okay, we've well hit it. And now we're really going to go after you. And I just think that that's, that's not, um, you know, even if the Office of Fossil Energy, which I believe they're changing their name to Fossil and Carbon. Um, and hmm. so that's a or carbon capture or something. So that, that's being changed. But the point is, is that. You know, these goals are increasingly being changed, and I think that plays a role, Um, all this plays a role in that consolidation, whether or not that helps or hurts. And from Exxon's standpoint, I don't think it's helping them.
1: So I should disclose that we own, so do you want to go into Exxon, or do you want to talk about natural gas some more?
0: I think we should... um, I think we should talk about natural gas a little bit more okay. I think we should pivot that because i so the this piece on you know the energy policy research Foundation along with the um the joint it was the uh it was the global gas Center did a joint webinar it was actually really a lot of speakers we only spoke for like seven minutes but it was a lot of information and the takeaway was pretty in that it was a good uh, group of different individuals um, and with various backgrounds. And I would say that these are folks that I've worked with in the industry for a long time. And I mean, folks that have been breaching major oil companies, Avant Andre is one of them, you know, that have a great amount of experience in this business. And they are, frankly, beyond like kind of alarmed at the stuff with like exxon with the activism on the boards um and just the movement of the ESG movement and not alarmed in that we didn't sit coming we don't know what ESG is like this all makes sense it's the role that it's playing and how it can distort markets and i'm particularly i mean i i'm very concerned at the the Executive orders that have been issued on the financial side um, in tandem with this. But I just, my presentation was essentially on what, you know, what US oil or what gas product production is and what are sort of the risks and vulnerabilities. Um, with federal leasing bans and things like that, and what's the trajectory of it. But uh, one of the biggest takeaways for me was a gentleman by Mr. Paul Teese, who's an adjunct professor at the Stern School of Business. And, you know, he did have his, he works in the investment space really closely. And so when he was talking particularly about um, ESG, um, and really emphasizing that a lot of it's the E now, obviously the environmental. And that's what I've been explaining to clients as well, is that social and governance, I would say, have, I think personally have taken a little bit of a backseat because if it was on the governance side, then we would be going after mining companies and solar companies and stuff into John. So it seems to be much more about the environmental stuff. And that, that piece is so conflated because that's what, assuming what the public wants you know, so this environmental piece is everything. There was another guy that was the chief sustainability officer that was on there. And he was just explaining that how amazing his life has been, how many parties he's getting invited to since he's had a new title of chief sustainability officer. And I mean, so the fact that that's a reality that people like want to talk to you more and they're doing that. I mean, that's, I'm not, I'm not poo pooing this. I'm just saying like, that's, this is a trend. This is this is a hy- hyperbole this is um you know this is a boom this is no different than anything else people are so intoxicated um with this green movement and there's so much and we still have this massive easy money and i you, so much so much easy money and so you have these two things i don't think without the biden administration you wouldn't have had the catalyst of, of what we're seeing right now i don't think you would have necessarily the exxon board moves had the biden inspiration not one and done i mean very clearly everything they've done on on you know, on climate, and every time I think that the administration is maybe, and a little bit, we'll come to the DAPL thing, we'll talk about DAPL, but you know, every time when I think, you know, maybe they're not as as against oil and gas as I think they might be, the, this administration, then I go through the executive orders in the Federal Register and I pull them up and I read through them, and I'm, you just have to read through them to to see it and to realize that you know you have 50, you have more executive orders than any other president. He's Biden is basically on track to have um, doubled the executive orders of, of Trump, Obama um, and Bush Jr. in their first term. So he's on track to have over 100 executive orders before the end of the year. And five of them are related to climate change. And climate change is his pivotal you know, focus of the entire you know, of his entire administration. And so it's very, very concerning to me. And from a natural gas standpoint, I told all these folks, I said, look, if I was to bet everything, and I've said it on this podcast, and I've said it a lot, if I was to bet everything I have, this house, you know, everything, I would bet go long on that gas. Because when all this falls apart, and the things of this, and I mean this as sincerely as I can to a lot of folks in the solar wind side, yes, a lot of it's going to work, a lot of renewables will work. But when the pieces of this, of pushing too hard, too fast break, natural gas is what is going to be it's going to still be standing and it's still going to work and it's still going to help green you know and and help countries actually reduce their carbon emissions and i think it's here to stay
1: yeah and if you look at a country like india the number one energy problem is lack of energy followed secondly by people having to deal with indoor air pollution from from burning dung for example to heat and cook and so the the There's almost this, uh, let me collapse some of their language, this colonialist, imperialist view of energy where it's, hey, you under-resourced, you know, third world countries, how dare you want to use the amount of energy we use in the cheapest form and fashion and the most reliable fashion that is available Mm -hmm. to you? It is very elitist Davos man type stuff that wrinkles me a little bit and, you know, clearly... If US LNG can support the growth of natural gas in India, for example, and allow them to have, you know, very low, lower carbon and much healthier air quality, that is a a path that they should go down. And it sounds like they're going to go down that path.
0: Well, I think so. I think these this. I think the global South is doing that. It was, this has sort of made me realize that, you know, talking to a, a couple of my friends at different consulting groups, when they say, hey, you know, these are big consulting groups that are spouting out lots of green stuff and telling people how the world's going to look. And they made, my friends have made comments to me that, hey, our Southern clients are not pleased with stuff. Like, you know, of course, if you're if you're a developing country, you may not like that IEA report. And, you know, this, the reason I, I really take, I, um i have a problem with reports like the ia net zero report is because how it's quoted and how it's used and how it's used as a backbone to like incentivize people and, and to go crazy but these folks in the south that are also dealing with you know these countries these developing countries that are still dealing with the pandemic raging are not exactly loving being told you're going green tomorrow and they're going to import this gas, but they are concerned increasingly about literally this webinar was on, is the U S going to have the natural gas, you know, are we going to have it? And I do think it's interesting that my, my former boss, had he he didn't get a response from the, from the administration, but he said, look, we we're really excited to actually hear from someone from the administration because we have not heard anything. Okay. So we were talking about this EPRINC webinar in this forum and natural gas and in the South and the, you know, or the, Developing countries consuming this. I think there is an increasing concern by these countries of whether or not, where does the US stand on, I mean, truthfully, where does the US stand on fossil fuels? If you are an outsider and you're looking at this, you know, the Biden administration has um, canceled Keystone XL and, you know, that was largely symbolic, but they basically um, went ahead on Nord Stream 2. Um, and so you may be getting a little bit of, if you're on the outside looking in, that may look is a they fail
1: to prove. To take aggressive action Phil to section the contracts of the streams.
0: So, you know, so then there's that. So you could say that's, that's positive. But in terms of the U.S., if you're following, if you were an outsider and you're following the internal dynamics of the U.S. closely, I don't think you would read it super well in terms of things are going great. And I think OPEC is probably interpreting that as actually this is you know, we're going to continue to see production muted. But I think if you're really thinking about, if you're, a, if you're Chenier or you're Tellurian, and you're Chenier Tellurian's, you know, counterparties that are buying this gas, you know, you are looking at this and wanting to know what is the longevity of this. And I think that the Haynesville is everybody's talking about the Haynesville. I mean, production is up. I mean, these wells are, they're crushing it. They're sixteen 16,000 MCF a day. I mean, we're seeing lateral lengths get extended uh, in every single basin. We're seeing massive efficiencies. I mean, the U.S. from a technical standpoint is literally, has, has way more to give, but I think that the regulatory side, yeah, Marcellus has two BCF daily pipeline capacity. We've mentioned that, but I think if you're if you're Japan and you're looking at the U.S., you are going to need at some point some clarity from the administration. And I, I think this is very hard for them because they have not come out and said it. Um, you know, they basically have said, you know, I think the Department of Interior, DePaul, and has said natural gas and crude oil are going to be around for a long time. Um, she said that, but at the same time, banning leasing on, on federal land uh, pending a review. And then you, you're hearing the same stuff out of the administration. And that's so you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth. And I think foreign countries that are importing this natural gas or have this dependability, reliability, are going to need that. And with all the, you know, these net zero 2050 reports and everybody getting behind them, it, there isn't a lot of clarity there. And that's not, you know, again, the then is there 20, th- those reports are, have a 50% probability on what they're actually trying to achieve. And so that's scary. In, in- terms of the... CO2
1: impact on temperatures.
0: Right. And so that's really when we when you study all this and you put it back all together and you're trying to figure out like the actual answers to everything. I think that that is meaning that there's not a lot of certainty, a lot of clarity on exactly what the administration is targeting. You know, obviously, um, the issue movement is anti-fossil fuels. And, you know, and the the administration is very much, um, you know, pushing climate change. But to what extent they will, you know, push this into foreign policy. Um, is a big degree, and that will impact liquefied natural gas. And I have some thoughts on that, on this executive order, which we I think we can we can roll into after. We have to get this, these banning of the, can, can we talk about the banning of natural gas in homes, or the Wall Street Journal article?
1: Uh, we have time for that. Let me just say first, uh, in, in the interest of disclosure, uh, we own ExxonMobil and Chenier in our energy book at BP Capital, so I just want to <laughs> disclose we're long both those positions, but... For me, the the analogy looks like this. I did see on the EPRI, EPRINC presentation this morning, uh, one of the presenters was talking about the limitation on infrastructure in the Northeast United States and how that will ultimately cap natural gas production there, which is, is the case because you can't build another pipeline. I haven't gotten anyone to really agree with me on this, and it's probably just a a, a matter of cyclical timing, but I don't expect the FERC to ever certificate another US LNG export project. And that therefore, in my mind, leads you to the conclusion that there is some embedded scarcity and option value in the existing FERC-certificated LNG export projects, particularly with the ones that have the ability to Switch between say Hangsville and Permian supplies. So, we have seen a couple of deals that Tellurian got done recently uh, for contracts on their way to FID, their facility Driftwood. And certainly Chenier's in the driver's seat in terms of US LNG. But it's it's interesting that that market for me is, is interesting to me that the market is picking back up now in terms of the ability to contract. And, and it's- Tolerian
0: just had an announcement today on their 10 year, yeah. Yeah, with
1: Vital. Yeah. So, and, and those those marketing agreements are interesting, particularly in light of the fact that there's significant supply and gutter, et cetera, right. globally. But I think it sets us up for a more bullish expectation on natural gas long-term. So with that said, you posted on LinkedIn about uh, an issue that's been on and off for a couple years, but is coming to a head now on the municipal the m- municipalities wanting to ban natural gas hookups some of this has been forced in the northeast because there was a gas supply what we're really talking about is the west coast ish desire to ban new natural gas hookups for climate reasons and chefs are up in arms and some of the midwestern states and those purplish states that have you know liberal cities and a red rural area, which is pretty much the case everywhere, are are putting in place state bans on municipalities banning natural gas to prevent access to that energy. So I know you have some thoughts on this. So
0: well, yeah, it was really fun. I think actually I didn't realize LinkedIn must have picked up my the, picked up the post and put it in their post because I have that I mean had like twenty five thousand probably has like thirty thousand views like 225 people commented on it. The comments were fascinating, by the way, because this is a this Wall Street Journal article is battle brews over banning natural gas to home. So over the weekend, I was just, it was pouring rain. So I was studying all weekend and working. And, um, and I came across this article and just thought, you know, this has been a timely issue. Robert Nord and I talked about it in the Texas Grid podcast that we had in, I think, episode six, where we talked about people wanting to put these bans in place. And really it's just growing in terms of an issue that it's it's not going away so you have these reds you have these red states with governors that are red typically and then you know or republican led states but then you have like Ethan said you have these more liberal cities and they've they some of them oppose just the concept it hasn't passed necessarily multiple cities have said okay we'd like to ban natural gas hookups in in new builds now you know, on the face of it, that doesn't sound so bad, but it it sounds to me like a little bit of greenwashing because what does it actually do in context? It makes people feel good because it's like, a, you know, 10 new homes in downtown Denver won't have natural gas hookups. But you got to ask yourself, what does it actually accomplish? Because the grid itself, and we talked about this, but it's important to think about. And, uh, you know, i I've, I think a lot about just. You know the concept of, of why people are so torn on energy right now but it is that you know so many of us have to we, we have to look at this and study it from a you know a, more of an engineering standpoint and it leads us to go a little bananas over this stuff because the grid is in denver is 30 percent coal you know we're getting roughly 30 percent of the power from coal roughly 20 percent from natural gas so when you to to go after the end user so that's what the administration what everyone's trying to do is to go after the the consumption and well the administration's actually going to supply but this is saying change the consumer behavior but the grid is still giving you is still supplied by coal and natural gas so you're not changing anything in fact you're exacerbating and making it worse and so By telling, you know, these new build homes and by the way, in Denver, new builds go up in weeks. These are crappy. They call them stick and, you know, it's stick and shit. You know, that's what they call them. That's what what people called them like five years ago. But you can see these homes, these these uh, duplexes going up within weeks. I walk the dog around and the house is built, you know, set up in a day and it's built in two weeks. So trust me, it's not a 200 year old brick home that's going to last forever. And I would wager that, you know, so if that home is is. Needs to be completely no natural gas lined into it. You know that's pulling all those new builds are pulling on the grid. Then pulling more than they would otherwise because natural gas does. You know if you're powering your water, my water heater is powered by natural gas. That went out this weekend, which was not fun because um, all the rain. But not well,
1: the fault of natural. Not
0: gas. the fault of natural <laughs> gas. <'cause> this <what laughs> was the fault of the the water heater. Um, I won't say the brand of it. Um, but so you know, powering water heaters, powering your stoves, powering your fireplaces. Um, and sometimes other appliances as well. And so it offsets it And that, and natural gas has a high, higher BTU energy content. So it's your electricity. Basically, if you were to power your home with electricity, you know, purely electricity or heat, you need three times as much. So you're pulling more on the grid to heat your home. And this is Denver and places. This is it's when it gets cold in the winter, you will need heat. And when it's hot in the summer, you will want air conditioning. Some people may want to live without air conditioning. I am not one of them. So. this is just a reality. And in these cities where, you know, you have temperate climates, this could work. You know, I'm not saying that in every instance this couldn't work and in test cases and, you know, maybe they can try it. But the reality is from the grid system, if you're thinking about doing this on a big scale, you will be pulling on the grid. And and then by the way, you'll be plugging in more, you know, electric vehicles and stuff. And so you have all this demand on the grid and you haven't changed that grid. So you're pulling on coal and and gas. You know, and I know the folks on the other side and the environmental side don't want to, you know, they're like well that's just not the argument you know we have to put one step in front of you know we have to start somewhere and i understand that that you want to start somewhere but the responses to this in linkedin on these were people were like well i didn't even know natural gas i didn't even know my stove was a climate change issue like i thought i could just cook on whatever i wanted to and there was a lot of responses of people very much on the far environmental side saying i you're this is you know we absolutely have to ban this you know that's that has to be done tomorrow and then other folks saying Why don't I get to choose my own fuel in my home? And I think that increasingly that's going to play a role of, you know, banning something. Anytime you put the ban on it and this administration, I don't know if they're going to be, want to be listed as the ban, you know, they're banning leasing on, on federal leases and stuff. You can't ban everything without having some kind of a backlash. So I just don't, this is stuff that's happening from a municipality level. And I think the States are basically, I mean, There's a reason the states would do it because they don't want the poll. There's a number of reasons. You're a Republican state, you're producing your own energy, you're producing natural gas. But I do think the grid thing is an issue. Like if all these cities are going and doing this, you would have polls on your grid that could be tricky.
1: Yeah, so let's let's hypothesize a, a, a liberal city in a blue state 10 years from now where everything is electrified, vehicles are going electrified, you've got... Basically, grid costs accelerating because of the grid build-out that's needed to support that. Energy prices are going up. So, my my issue with this is that it's highly regressive. So, most people listening to this podcast probably could afford a 20 or 30% increase in their electric prices. The, there's a whole segment of the population for which that is could be the difference between positive and negative monthly free cash flow. We already have the Low-Income Heating and Assistance Program, and many years ago, a gas marketer in Denver wrote about how the shale boom and lowered costs actually did much more than this federal program for heating oil subsidies to make sure that the poorest people in the United States, did, in the Northeast particularly, did not freeze in the winter. And the shale boom, obviously, you know, we destroyed natural gas prices, but the benefit of that to consumers was huge. Most of the policies we see in place are supply restrictive and restrictive against natural gas, and that's going to raise energy prices.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not that if if this is what somebody really feels and they believe, I respect your standpoint and where you're coming from on it. I disagree with how it's going to work out in practice, and truthfully, I disagree with how one city in one state banning natural gas hookups to new builds is going to have a a dent in the in the whole um, environmental footprint in terms of the actual CO2 emissions and therefore in the grand scheme of things, the actual, you know, the temperature change. I would love to it's know. It's the one
1: starfish right. on, the, on the beach. Yeah. Did
0: I mean, it? I just don't think, and I know that that's, that's uh, more of a, you know, that's how people want the momentum and the changes and the shifts. And then if we all do it and everything, but, but the reality is, is that, you know, it's it's not that you shouldn't do anything because you you can't worry. You know, China and India are doing their own thing, but it is a it is a reality when because this starts getting this starts getting into the politics of how people live, and this starts getting into where it becomes a fight is that you're changing people, you're wanting to change people's behaviors, and I just think about it in Colorado. I mean, go on Zillow and look at homes. Look at I mean, things sell like wildfire. They they're selling in the mountains overnight. But look in the mountains in Aspen, in in anywhere in Colorado. Places that you want to enjoy use natural gas. It's, they use fires, So I don't know if people, um, I'm sure many people ski. You Do you really want to ski or go to a restaurant in the winter or anything without propane? So I don't think you can have it both ways. If you can't have natural gas in new builds, then when you go to a restaurant, you shouldn't be able to have propane and sit out there by the fire. I will sit out there by the fire and, and I'd sit up by my fire every night. But I'm just saying like that, it does bother me as a consumer of natural, not that I'm just, it's raw, raw natural gas. It's that I really enjoy sitting by the fire in Colorado, in Wyoming. And I will probably have to move to Wyoming if I'm concerned that, you know, if I buy a house or want to bu- buy land in Colorado and I build a home on it, I'm not going to be able to, I mean, it's a real concern. If my fireplace goes out, or eventually am I going to have a ban where I can't replace it with a fireplace? Well,
1: let me propose this to you. Um, I I actually think what Civitas is doing with selling CO2 neutral gas makes a ton of sense. They can offset the carbon emissions that they sell to their customers more cheaply than we can switch over the entire energy system and, and bake in the use of an inferior energy delivering mechanism. So what do you think about that?
0: Well, I, that's a... I think it's positive. It's the direction it needs to go. It's the direction it's going to go anyway. So just like carbon, you know, just like having carbon neutral barrels, the same thing for natural gas and the cleaner it can be. In Colorado, we have some of the highest emission standards in the country. We actually have some of the air from an air quality standpoint from actual oil and gas development. Some of the highest you you, I've been in London listening to the chief economist of the International Energy Agency. Citing you uh, Colorado production standards for on emissions. So, and this was like in 2016. So, this is we we've been ahead of the curve from that standpoint. Um, so, that's not a bad thing, right? That's a very good thing. Um, and I think it, it's going the right direction. And I I sound like I'm I'm a little bit crazy on the natural gas thing, but it's it's the reality of like how intrinsic it is. And if you pull up the natural gas map of the U.S. of the pipelines, like you know, how intrinsic and fabricated it is. And, you know, one or two cities doing this, and I say this because this article actually says, major cities, including San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, and New York, have either enacted or proposed measures to ban or discourage the use of fossil fuel in new homes and buildings. Two years after Berkeley, California, passed the first such prohibition in the U.S. in 2019. The bans, in turn, led Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Kansas, and Louisiana to enact laws outlining such municipal prohibitions in their states before they can spread. And I think there's... Some consideration to be thinking about literally the technical aspects of this. Of that, if you start these bans, the reason they don't want to start the ban is because it could go, it could, it could trickle out, and there are implications for it. I also think is like, does that you know? In Denver, we have a fire. The reason I have a natural gas fire is because I can't. You know, some days times we have no burn days because of the actual the air quality in the environment. So in the in the real city of Denver, um, you have no burn days. Well, you know, now we hear reports and I, all kinds of reports from environmental agencies, from IEA and everybody, of modern biofuels, which are essentially wood and pellets. So, you know, we're now going back to, like, burning pellets. So I'm, I'm OK with this. Like, I'm, I'm not opposed to this, but it's a reality of that you're going from natural gas to pellets or whatever. But the point is, is that I, I just don't know if you're going to you're gonna be able to get rid of all this, especially in places like Colorado, in which people, you know, it's kind they're kind well, of accustomed.
1: Technically you can. It's just at what price?
0: Yes, technically you can. Technically
1: you can, but at what price? Yes. Yeah. Do the do the changes ultimately become cost prohibitive to the goods and services. Very, very inflationary. So we have reached a natural stopping point. We still have a lot to cover. We do. So episode nineteen is gonna be us talking about executive orders and engine number 1 so I and and so we'll we'll conclude yes. here and we'll come back to you with the exact same order of three.
0: yeah uh thank you guys so much for listening we will see you later.